0: This is People Who Play, a show about the art of playful living. I'm Emma Worrellow, researcher, writer and part-time mermaid.
1: And I'm Ben Martin, content creator and nostalgia junkie.
0: Join us once a week as we discuss our playful approach to parenting, work and marriage. Plus, look out for extra guest episodes. We believe that fun should be part of the everyday, and we are here to support any grown-ups who want to grow down and avoid the onset of serious itis that kicks in in adulthood. Find me on Instagram at playful underscore den. And if you'd like more of my content, you can subscribe to my Patreon just search for my name Emma Warrillow and get access to exclusive podcasts insights and updates
1: and for all your retro feels find me on Instagram at BenFlyingRetro. Retro
0: we really do appreciate all your likes subscribes follows and shares these digital high fives really mean a lot to us and help us to grow the show okay let's get on with the episode it's playtime Hello, everyone. It's me, Emma. I'm back. Welcome to another guest episode of People Who Play. It is March. Spring is in the air, folks. It is a time time of change. And this episode is all about change and how play can be a springboard for change significant change this is what we're talking about today societal change I've got a really great guest Adam Lewis who is a social entrepreneur and change maker who is focused on using play and sport to drive social justice and build equitable communities around the United States. I absolutely loved this conversation with Adam. One of my core motivations for focusing on play, putting out content, researching, and finding new ways to spread the message and share information about play is because really at the heart of what i believe is that play can change the world i really believe that we have a lot of let's just call them existential crises in the world that's nothing new but it does feel like we are at a very significant point in time we need people to be open to be innovative to close the gap in division and i truly believe that we cannot do that without play i think that play needs to be at the heart of some of the strategies that we take to achieve the change that is required in the world and this conversation with adam was really eye-opening and insightful into some of the practical ways that that can be applied and that are already happening adam is one of um, many people who are experimenting with things like sport and play and even art and creativity to close those gaps, to bring people together, to connect through play and essentially our humanity. So let me tell you a little bit about Adam. So he is currently an appointed advisor to the Portland, Oregon's Parks and Recreations Bureau board. And he founded a um, organization called street soccer in u s a Portland, which is what we talk a lot about today. His background is very much sport orientated um, he also has experience in one of the USA's largest athletic clubs. He led the social impact legacy strategy for the INEOS at the World Athletic Championships. And he was selected as a fellow within the New Leaders' Council. Um, He's done a remarkable amount, for certainly for his age, and is a real advocate for the power of play. We really shared that Passion, and he has put that into speaking um, and he spoke about play and empathy at TEDx and on and on it goes he is a really fascinating person and um, I really enjoyed speaking to him we've kind of become buddies since connecting and he's just done some really cool work and I really hope that this inspires you not only to understand the true power of play i use that expression a lot as do most people who use within the the industry the world of play everyone talks about the power of play and i think in this conversation that really is explored to great length to see what that literally looks like when you use play in very challenging circumstances. So I hope that inspires you to understand the power of play, and perhaps to think about how if you are someone who is looking to make change in the world, either in a, a kind of bigger way through an organization or fundraising or particular ideas that you want to get off the ground, or just in your own life, change can happen right under our noses. And I hope that this inspires you to make the change through play that you are motivated to make. Enjoy this conversation. Adam, welcome to People Who Play. This is going to be a really different conversation i think to one we've had before i'm really thrilled to have you here
1: yeah thank you emma i'm i'm excited and i hope a different conversation means a a good conversation a little little worry
0: absolutely (laughs) no this is gonna this is gonna be fascinating and yeah just just thinking about the ways that you have used play and observed the power of play i think is gonna be fascinating for me and for our listeners so before we get there could you give us a little explanation of who you are and what you do and what your specific connection and interest to play is
1: yeah absolutely this comes with a little bit of a long-winded story so feel free to 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 jump in take it Um, away so this this work, you know, sort of play in social impact and play in social justice more broadly is, is hugely personal for me. You know, so I, I grew up in, in Portland, Oregon in, in the United States and, or excuse me, I grew up in Corvallis, Oregon. I live in Portland now. I'm already, <laughs> already fumbling over my words. So I, I grew up in Corvallis, um, which is this sort of small, you know, semi-affluent town that's split between, you know, folks that are employed by a hospital and a university Um, And I had this incredible privilege to play soccer all over the state. Um, And one team I played for in particular has really stuck with me over the years. Um, You know, a lot of my teammates were in and out of correctional facilities, not entirely sure where they're sleeping that night, Um, you know, constantly suspended from school. And, you know, to to use a really bad sports cliche for for a lot of us, this was the first time that someone was going to be on the other end of a pass. So, you know, fast forward, geez, it was it was six years after my, my last game with them. And, and I was already through university. I just graduated college. And I remember being stuck in horrible traffic, trying to drive home to see my family over the holidays. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, all right, if I can't move my car, I might as well move my body. And so I, I pulled off uh, to a 24-hour fitness in Salem, Oregon, and was jogging around on half of the basketball court to, to warm up. And I see this guy side-eyeing me from across the gym. And the only thing I'm thinking of is just get me out of here. I don't <laughs> want a confrontation. I just want to go home. Um, and he goes, Hey, Adam. And he he jogs over and he gives me this big hug. In mind view, you, you know, I am not entirely sure what's happening right now. I don't know who this person is. I, you know, sort of give give them a loose embrace. I'm a little bit confused and and they apologize. They said, I'm sorry. And the only thing that I could muster to respond with was, was it's okay. I'm sure whatever has happened, whoever you are. It's fine. And it turns out it was one of my old teammates. Uh, He had just spent his third stint in a correctional facility and he had felt like he had let our team down. Mind you, we didn't live in the same city. We weren't particularly friendly. Um, You know, there there was no sort of personal connection tethering Mm. us together besides play and sport. And I remember leaving that interaction and, you know, again, looking at brake lights on my way home to see my family and thinking to myself, you know, there's something here. There's something in these silly little games that we play with each other that have a profound impact on the way that people live their lives. And so from there, I actually quit a full-time job um, working for a technology company, which was actually an absolute blessing because I hated it, um, <laughs> to, uh, and really set out with this vision to figure out how sport, play, and recreation can mm-hmm. address society's greatest challenges. And so my first major project, you know, inspired by, by my teammates, um, was developing a soccer based homeless services agency in Portland, Oregon, um, that started as, you know, a thing where I would, I would go coach three guys in a, in a homeless shelter and turned into a program that served 750 people in homeless shelters, correctional facilities, migrant detention centers, um, you know, the lowest income neighborhoods in Portland and sort of you know, provided me with this incredible perspective that just reinforced everything I thought I had learned as a youth athlete. Mm. And that's that sport and play has this incredible power, if we're willing to indulge it, to change the way that we view community and, and frankly, you know, be an incredibly vital part to addressing everything from climate change to mass incarceration, homelessness, gun violence, um, and, and frankly, just creating a healthier democracy.
0: Mm. So when you had that interaction with your former teammate, was the light bulb moment for you that he had sort of remembered or he'd embodied that particular experience that you were having in recreation? I don't know what level you were playing to, but it sound, was it kind of more for fun or was it quite high level?
1: So I think at the time I like to think it was high level, you know, (laughs) I think my, my, my high school ego really liked that, but um, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, it was, it was competitive, but it wasn't anything. Yeah. None of us were, were, you know, going to play in the world cup. Um, I think the moment for me that really sort of set me on this path was that if after six years, of yeah. not having a relationship with someone. Again, we didn't go to the same school. We didn't even live in the same city. I didn't even still have his phone number. You know, if after that much time, they were still this palpable connection to something that we did together, you know, my my mind started to spin in this way and say, okay, if you can create these kind of relationships through something as purposelessness, you know, purposeless as, as place, I mean, as silly as, as kicking a soccer ball around, you know, how can you apply this to societal challenges? How mm-hmm. can you apply this to the way that we govern societies? And it, it started with this very abstract idea, and then sort of honed in on like, what actionable programs can we create? Mm-hmm.
0: So your organization where you were teaching football to homeless people, what what was that organization called?
1: Um, it was called street soccer portland street soccer a, portland yeah it was okay. a, a a chapter of a national organization called street soccer USA and the uh um the way i got involved with them is also kind of a funny story and I'll, I'll I'll sort of breeze through it quickly is um so after i had that interaction with you know that chance encounter with my teammate i um reached out to about 10 or 15 different you know sport for development if you will organizations So folks using using sport and play to address different societal challenges. And I reached out to all these people and said, hey, homelessness is the biggest problem in Portland. Here's how I think we should adapt it. This is what's missing in the scope of city services. And 90% of them were like, you're crazy. No, you cannot use our curriculum. You know, leave us alone. And finally, I just wore down street soccer. And they were like, all right, fine. Like, go use the curriculum, see what happens. And uh, yeah, and it ended up being a, a really sort of, you know, important project to me personally but I think you know hopefully the city feels the same way is that it's it's really been able to to create an impact and, and sort of change the way that folks view homeless services mm.
0: and what what is significantly impactful and important about bringing to get people together through games and play and sport because people might say you should just put all of your resources into getting those people houses. What is it about what you were doing that you observed made you feel you wanted to keep going and you were sort of seeing, seeing an impact?
1: That is an incredibly timely question because I think every major city in the US is having that same reckoning. Mm. Is that if we're we're dealing with these societal challenges, why are we why are we putting money into you know secondary services, so to speak? I think that there's sort of a few ways to approach that question. And I think the most impactful way to talk about that is like how this is thinking about it sort of in, in two different timelines. So in the short term, um, how are you building community and, and safe spaces to build relationships? And, you know, one of the inspirations behind starting Street Soccer was there was this, this report that came out in the Oregonian where you know, we, we run what's called a, a point in time survey which is where all the folks that are experiencing homelessness are are surveyed to find out what demographics are experiencing homelessness, how can we yeah. you know, better address it? And the resounding sentiment from those folks was that there was a massive poverty of relationships, mm. is that there was no safe space to go and to have your humanity restored. Yeah. And so in the short term, the thing that was so important to me is how can you create a, a safe space That someone can recognize that they're a person, yeah. Again, and this happens in spaces where that humanity, that personhood, has frankly been ripped out. Mm. When you're experiencing homelessness, think about how many times people walk by you on a street corner and don't acknowledge your existence. And the same thing happens when you're incarcerated; is that you know you, you are almost forgotten, you are separate from society, and that sort of inherent it's it's an inherent division but it's a it's one that was designed that way mm. and so i think that you know in the short term addressing you know investing resources in, in sport and play is important to provide people with a with a semblance that they belong in in the world frankly um
0: yeah that's so that's- interesting and uh, yeah making people reconnect with their humanity and there is nothing more human than playing. Um, I think some people find that quite hard to wrap their heads around. And I sometimes say, if, try and imagine if we know that play is something that we do just because we want to do it mostly for enjoyment. Um, you know, it's it's sort of following our own interests, doing it with other people. If we imagine play as that, and then we imagine none of that in the world, it would be so inhumane it would just mm-hmm. be like a planet full of robots and it's interesting you know when you started out and you were like there's something in these silly little games they're not silly little games they are yeah. expressions of humanity um and that's really interesting to hear you describe the sort of the rationale or the 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 implications for bringing this to to those members of society who, as you describe, have had that humanity ripped out of them. What have been some of the things that you've observed from putting this program into action? Perhaps you could share some stories from some of the people that you've worked with, some of the impacts that the the experience of bringing these people together through sport and players had on their lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll 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 point to one. So a, a, a quick note. Um when I tell a lot of these stories, I I do subtly change names, small details, cool. things like that. Um just so, you know, if there are any listeners, you know, Google won't work to verify this. <laughs> um I think the the biggest takeaway that I've had, and this is this is one that is a bit sort of imaginative, is I think sort of the the things that folks inherently understand from sport. Um, you know, our confidence, team building, learning all of these soft skills that you can learn in everything from playing rock, paper, scissors, all the way up to putting on, you know, pads and a helmet and and playing in the Super Bowl. But one thing that I think is often really unnoticed is that sport and games and recreation and sort of everything in between are really radical rubrics to learn what a just society could look like. Mm. And what I mean by that is, the the rules of the game you know the clock runs at the same speed the boundaries are fixed the ball is always round um provide this sort of idyllic you know this 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 really idyllic version of what a just and equitable society could look like but if you dive a bit deeper you actually have this firsthand experience in learning what justice could look like and what humanity can look like in in other people and so you know, a story that I often point to is, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is is this event called the Unity Match. And so, so one day uh, soccer tournament in in Portland, Oregon, um, well, it's foot's so more, if, and if you're unfamiliar, it's just you know, soccer on basketball courts, pretty much. And um, it's this big community tournament to bring folks together in support of homeless youth. But the the marquee event in the middle of it is all of the games shut down. And on one of the courts, about 500 people gather around to watch um, Portland's Homeless World Cup program. So, folks that are experiencing homelessness in in Portland, Oregon, um, compete alongside everybody from city officials to judges, district attorneys, and professional athletes. And the goal behind this game is taking folks in our community that are most ignored. So, the folks Mm -hmm. that you walk by without a second thought on every street corner and the most visible, the folks that are on ballots that are mailed to your house, the folks that you see on television. And the learning that comes out of this game is that is it's really about two things. First thing is about visibility, is these folks that are quite literally deciding where we all sleep every night, the folks that are shaping the laws of our country, folks that are delivering rulings on who is incarcerated, are forced to pay attention to people as their equals. Mm. And that's a really rare scene in, mm. at least in in society in the United States. And, and what we found from this was, so we, we hosted this game, and one of the the players in, in, you know, what was called the unity match was a was a judge. And about five, six weeks after um, after participating in this game, he actually had this chance encounter to preside over, one of our players who played in the game from the Homeless World Cup program's um, felony case. And that day our player had his felony expunged. And so this is not to say that the judge acted, you know, impartially or with bias or favorability. Mm. Um, but what it is to say is that the game provides this, you know, the soccer game, rock, paper, scissors, and again, everything in between provides these mm. really interesting chances for us to experience People and humanity and justice in a different way, and the more that you do that in the safe space of play, the better you get at it everywhere else.
0: Yeah, I think it's just so important, and it just the imagination just just sort of goes wild as to the possibilities, doesn't it? Um, and and what you're sort of talking about is empathy building and mm-hmm. how and sort of seeing people, and you know, we've talked about how in play. It is this deep expression of humanity. The metaphors that you're talking about, I I love that because I'm really fascinated by the metaphors that exist in play. Even like, you know, stepping stones. For you know, one step at a time. Like, there's all mm-hmm. of these like really deep life metaphors that you can actually physically get on top of and kind of mm-hmm. play with in a really sort of tangible way. Um, and you describe that in the metaphor of a society within these games. Um, yeah, there's so much going on in there. What what would you say is important about the type of play that works within this type of context that we're talking about? Because sport is not for everyone um it's Mm -hmm. you know it's not necessarily an even playing field in terms of ability skill etc um there are a lot of rules there is a goal to sort of win so there's quite a lot of structure around it um which might actually be work better for what you're talking about. But yeah, I just love to reflect a little bit on what you experienced about the specific type of game and sport that enabled you to, the, the participants to to experience some of what we're talking about, the expressions of humanity, the empathy, the metaphors.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. And so my, a, a slight sort of you know, caveat is, is, the majority of my work is, has really been focused on sport. And, um, you know, I, I would love, uh, to sort of see representations of this come up in, in other areas in in other expressions of play. Mm-hmm. I think the, the thing that I've, you know, learned perhaps most throughout my career is, um, that everyone's play looks different. Yeah. Like you said, and it's, it's very personal yet Mm. tethers you into community. It's this really interesting, you know, almost Venn diagram, if Mm. you will. Um, You know, it's, you know, being playful is a way that we can connect to the world around us, even if it is a solitary activity. Mm. Um, I think that the key in very specific activations like this that are trying to break down societal barriers and that are trying to reframe the way that we view the world, um, they, they, first of all, they have to be very intentional. And what I mean by that is not sort of trying to like trick anyone, right? Like everybody that played in the Unity match knew what they were getting into. And you know, we we have a very open conversation with all of our players, you know, first and foremost, against playing against folks that they, you know, frankly might hold a lot of resentment yeah. against. Um, and and vice versa, you know. So I think the first part comes from that honesty and, and intentionality. And secondly, it really has to start with centering the athletes. And by athletes, you know, I could probably use a broader term there, you know, centering the people that are playing, because if we're not sort of looking at things through that community lens and through that that lens of who has lived experience, then the activity becomes patronizing. Mm. And you see a lot of that in these sort of, you know, very forced roundtable discussions or photo ops things that feel very forced, but the the sort of magic of play, if you will, and again, I know that's a little cheesy, but the, the magic of play is really that folks want to be there.
0: Yeah, like because if it's not self-directed, it's not play.
1: Exactly, exactly. And there's that, um, you know, something that's always been so important in, in defining play for me is that continuation principle, mm-hmm. is that when you're playing, you want to keep doing it. Yes, And fly, right. And so I think that being able to create that space, whether you're playing soccer or football or rock, paper, scissors or painting and drawing is being able to to find that space where it is something that people are doing willingly and Mm. engaging in willingly and then being really intentional about how you're structuring it. Mm. And I think that there's you know, there's a lot that hasn't been explored there. Mm. Um, but there's so much untapped potential in that space
0: Mm. and did you find the game of futsal a a kind of easy access game to allow those people to step into that moment of flow like was there just curious if was any resistance there or as part of your centering sort of supporting people because it can be really hard to play when you're stressed um Mm -hmm. and you know the the people that you're working with are facing you know really they haven't even got their basic safety sorted um so it can be really hard to get into that phase when you have um essentially you're living in in trauma what did you Learn about the game of futsal or that process of centering the participants um, to help people get into the state of play.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, I think a really important one. So from an accessibility standpoint, um, there are there are challenges with you know any activity. So what materials do you need? and what sort of equipment do you need? You know how are you? Uh, how are you finding a safe space to do it? And I think the sort of choice of of futsal for us is that you don't need cleats, you don't need yeah. shin guards, you can play in jeans, yep. you can play in boots, Yep. You know, um, you can play in 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 whatever. And so, from an accessibility standpoint, uh, I think that's that's important to note. I think the other piece of this is we have we have a very sort of traditional view of what sports look like especially in the United States, they're organized, they're paid for, they are pushing kids and adults, frankly, into this competitive track. And sort of my, my vision in Portland was to completely throw that out. Say, all right, like this model is completely broken. So thinking about folks and serving folks that are, like you said, living through trauma and are lacking a safe space Is how do you create that foundational pillar mm-hmm. for them? And so what is different about our program that creates safe spaces for people? And that, that sort of trend has continued throughout my career, you know, whether I was, excuse me, collaborating with the World Championships or, you know, now with the city of Portland is really thinking about, you know, what creates a safe space? What are the small intentional tweaks that you can make Mm. to create a space that people want to come to in a place that people want to fail in.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I imagine that a lot of these people feel like they have failed a lot. And to give them a space where they can do that safely, I imagine that is quite transformational. From what I know about play, um, and particularly the sort of the psychology of play and being able to find those spaces where you can take risks and mm-hmm. fail safely it's you know really empowering for resilience confidence some of those things that you that you mentioned that were associated with sport
1: yeah yeah absolutely and i think it's it's something that takes time you know i think that any sort of program that or philosophy that looks radically different from what you're experiencing you know in in day-to-day society is, is certainly a slow process mm. um, I think the other piece of it really is just having a place where people are and again, this sounds very fundamental, but a place where you are called by your name yeah, is that you know that was one of the biggest pieces of feedback is like this is a place where you don't have to play every day. You know, you can show up and you can sit on the side if you're not feeling up to it, but you're going to have people giving you high fives and you're going to have people that are are there to to look you in the eye. And so I think in creating those spaces, you know, to, to go back to your previous question, it really is about like centering the experience of the folks that you want to serve.
0: I'm curious in your, is it the unity match? Did you call it? I'm curious
1: yeah,
0: how what was the expectations from both sides before they played and kind of how the different teams entered into that space and that game and then how that shifted after the game
1: that's uh that's a great question and i think you know like i mentioned we we have to start this process through through a practice of really radical honesty mm. of telling people exactly what they're getting into and telling them the exact intentionality of the game mm. And so I'll sort of start with with our players. You know, I, I have this vivid memory of, you know, this was before the 2019 game where we, we all sat at a picnic bench outside of this, you know, futsal center that, you know, frankly just looks like a giant airplane hangar in Southeast Portland and sat them down and, you know, described what the game was and said, you know, um, you all are going to be playing against folks that quite literally just have decided where you sleep every night. And for a lot of you, might have been involved in the justice system or quite literally presided over your yeah. cases. And, you know, you sort of see the whole spectrum of emotions. You see nerves, mm. you see anger. Mm. Um, but what I was really struck by is a lot of the folks that were involved in the program much longer um, stepped up as leaders in this space. And, you know, I have this, this vivid memory of one of them saying, you know, he, he kind of blurted out. He said, you know, I, I might've been addicted to drugs. I might not have had a place to live, but I want to show them, you know, that we can ball out on the soccer field. And <laughs> I was like, oh, that's like, you know, that's so cute. And that's so, you know, such, such, such like an incredible sentiment. And, you know, another one said, he was like, you know, Hey, it, it always feels like it's us versus them. Mm. And sort of like, you know, as, as I'll put it is like, you know, Portland's lowest income in, in houseless communities against, folks that either have more or, or hold power in society. And the other side of it is, or actually, let me, let me focus sort of pull out that thread a little bit more is, you know, something that's so striking to me about the experience of the players is that this is in a very interesting way, a lobbying technique is that, you know, sort of the way that policy has changed, at least in the United States, is there's sort of this this code to it, right? There's a decorum and the space of play breaks that down. Mm. And it allows folks that are experiencing homelessness in the community to lead the conversation without saying anything, to reframe the way that the most powerful people in society view them simply by playing. And on the other side of that that coin, so to speak, is with civic leaders is describing, hey, this is an incredible opportunity For you to connect with people in a different way is that you can, you know, embed yourself in the community as best you can. But I have this firm belief that if you can't play with someone else, you can't understand their experience.
0: Totally. Yeah.
1: And so this, you know, this sort of takes the hypothetical out of, you know, if you can or can't play with someone says you have the opportunity to play with people that you govern. Mm. And so like this, if nothing else is going to be a fun day, and more so on the profound level, could impact the way that you lead our society with empathy and with justice. So I think you know that is sort of at the, at the core of what we have to do in these situations is just, frankly, just be really upfront and honest with people.
0: And when they came out of the game, how did their perceptions change?
1: Um, right. So I, I mentioned that that story about the judge presiding over mm-hmm. over one of the players um over one of the players cases and i mean again that is you know not a sustainable model you know you can't have every judge play with yeah. every person in a society that might well
0: if we dream big I mean, yeah, yeah a lot of time and money is spent on I don't even understand what happens in the legal system. It it seems completely bonkers. I think it's a reasonable argument to say, I wonder if we could sort this out in a different way and have everyone right. play some kind of game, increase our empathy, understand each other, one another. Um, I know that people will be like, that's absolutely ridiculous. But I don't know, seem to waste a lot of time doing other things. Um, and, and, you know, you've seen some real evidence in, in action there
1: yeah I mean I I think we might need to schedule another podcast for that about <laughs> you know restorative justice models and you know prisons and things like that yeah um,
0: it's so interesting because even with um it's just the concept of putting play
1: mm-hmm.
0: into structures into places where it just doesn't exist that right. excites me because I think it's so it's such an underutilized human resource like we're very good at utilizing other human resources creativity um leadership like you know we 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 use those all day long but play we reserve for moments of recreation for frivolity for fun we don't put them into the serious darker parts of society enough And therefore, we don't know enough about the results and what what can come from them. But we certainly do know enough about the science of play and what Mm -hmm. happens in our brains and what happens, as you're describing, when other people experience this together, right from your very first story, that person, you know, six years have gone by. And this narrative, this experience that you had together is still so deep that the first thing he said to you is, sorry. We know enough that we should be, we should be experimenting more with putting play into these spaces where it feels completely just deprived of.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it's something that is quite profound in, in the ways that, you know, we've, we've talked quite a bit about the ways that, that people view themselves. mm but I think it's also about the perception of marginalized groups of society yes. to everyone else. And it's very much so this, this you know, concept of of visibility. Mm. Is it like how are you seen by other people? And I think this happens in very, very small power dynamics. It's like, how are you viewing someone that is your opponent, that is your teammate, you know, that that is the referee, but also in in a setting that you know, doesn't always sort of welcome play or that is seen as untraditional, you know, you know, one of my experiences, well, I'll sort of touch on two pieces here is, you know, I started two programs, one in a migrant detention center. Um, And so for those of you that are, you know, unfamiliar, so for um, folks that are entering the United States and awaiting an asylum trial, um, there isn't quite a defined system of like what to do. In that situation, and so folks are put into these, you know, often really, frankly, horrific migrant detention centers. And so we put a program in, 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 in one of those, um, and then also into a uh, youth incarceration facility. And you know, taking on that same trend of, of being able to redefine how you see someone that you're playing with, this was also happening with folks running those facilities. And so how are you changing the perception of the way that prison guards are treating people Mm. that are incarcerated? And how are you changing the perception of folks that are coming to the United States fleeing violence and are placed in these horrific situations? How are you changing the way that, you know, everyone from, you know, John Smith and Jane Doe view them all the way up to the highest levels of government? And Mm. I think that the more comfortable we get with play in those situations, the more open we are to add in other programs Mm. in those spaces. But ultimately, the more adept and the more willing we are to change them completely. Mm.
0: It's interesting, you're sort of using play to break down that us versus them, which can be really abstract and almost becomes like they're not humans. They're just sort of this other right. group and we're constantly in tension with them and play just cuts right through that. People might be wondering why you pitched the teams against each other rather than have them mixed up and, and working on teams together. Was that also part of playing through the metaphor? Like, did you consider mixing the teams or was that kind of intentional as part of the
1: experience? So the the second year we we did mix them. Okay. And it was actually um at the request of the players, you know, mm. but this conversation we really talked about sort of centering um folks with the lived experience and that was something that they wanted. And the first year, it was something that they wanted was to play against them.
0: right. And so Interesting.
1: It was, right. and so it was, it was very much so this this learning experience mm. for me where you know, in truth be told, I think, In terms of like optics, I think like mixing the teams is probably better for from like a fundraising standpoint, right? You know, it's makes makes for a better photo op. But I think there's value in both. Mm. You know, I mean, you see this even in like silly games, you know, like uh, teacher versus student basketball games, right? But I really do think that the more impactful activation is in that that model where you're mixing up teams.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating that that's what they initially wanted
1: mm-hmm.
0: to play, almost like playing through that tension, taking on their current roles, taking them into play, you know, against each other. And then the next evolution is to collaborate. That's really interesting. And you said earlier that it is a journey. It's a process. And that's a, that's a really insightful observation of what they wanted to do the next time. Really cool. Yeah. Um, I'd love to ask you for for the last part of the conversation. um, A lot of my guests are doing work that they are deeply engaged with and have a lot of sort of career satisfaction and joy and have kind of really found their meaning and purpose. And I always love to ask people about their kind of pivot journey. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to so many people, especially post-pandemic, who – are looking for more meaning in their work. I think we're in a real evolutionary time and reimagining of career and work. And you, you have done that. You've had quite an extreme journey from tech company that you weren't enjoying to doing something that's like deeply rooted in your local community and in social action. Would you be able to share a bit about that pivot and how you did it like practically emotionally the experience because i think i think it's really interesting for people to learn from other people's experiences of how they've done that
1: i'll I'll start off by saying i i would not recommend the way that i did it to anyone else <laughs> it was really difficult and it was really emotionally taxing mm. and i don't think that i felt that you know, to lead with a bit of vulnerability. I really didn't feel that until I got through the pandemic, mm. which was coincidentally actually when I stepped down from street soccer. I made the announcement in February of 2020, if you can believe it. And then in March of 2020, you know, the the whole world changed. Um, but you know, my my journey was really head first. Mm. And I think it's important to acknowledge that my journey came with a ton of privilege and access to opportunity. You know, I had a college degree and a savings account. And so, you know, me jumping into a, a sort of really, you know, dedicated mode of, of social impact and social mm-hmm. justice, you know, didn't necessarily come with a complete burning of the boats. Yeah. You know, I, I had a safety net and I think, you know, up front, that's really important to recognize yeah. that it doesn't always exist. All of that said, you know, my journey to have this become a sort of stable career, if you will, was really difficult. In the early days of street soccer, I was reinvesting everything we raised back into the programs yeah. and into the community we served. And so, you know, in the, in the mornings, in the first six months of starting that program, I was actually working as a gardener on Craigslist. Um, and Craigslist, for those of you that don't know, is sort of just like a generic job yeah. board for you know odd gigs here and there. And so, you know, I'd wake up early in the morning. I would go do some landscaping, get covered in mud, throw on pants, go fundraise in the afternoon, and then you know I was back to soccer clothes uh, in the evening to go coach in the shelter. And that was—I look back at that moment as a as a time when I learned about you know grit and resiliency and you know, really sort of testing your conviction Mm. and and vision about what you see is the best thing for the community. Looking back, that was exhausting and entirely unsustainable and very difficult. So sort of my, my word of advice to, to folks, and I find myself saying this a lot is, is think about, really think about your sphere of influence. So, you know, your sphere of influence might not be starting a grassroots nonprofit Mm -hmm. or, you know, even finding a meeting with your Senator to figure out, you know, how you can create more equitable laws or how you can inject play into different situations. It might just be that you are a, you know, you're on a corporate team and maybe you want to introduce play into that team more often, or maybe the next time you go play personally, you think about what you're actually learning Mm -hmm. and you start to lean into this reimagination that you're actually learning about justice and equality and humanity and that the more that you do that the better you're going to get it at everywhere else and so from a play perspective i think that's a great place to start Mm. from a purely social impact perspective i think it again comes back to that influence find the people that listen to you and talk
0: yeah i think that's great advice because some people would think i don't really have a sphere of influence but i everyone is an influencer that the, the right. people around you are they're looking at you and they're interested in you and you know you have a you have a voice so I think that's really that's really great advice and what has your experience been of uh transitioning into a space and with all these projects that that you're really passionate about like how does it sort of manifest itself in your life. I know that there's a huge burnout with Mm -hmm. activism and social impact, but do you, do you recognize a difference in yourself from your job before to what you're doing now?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think I always haven't, you know, I, I really haven't been the best at recognizing when that burnout comes about. And I think that it is, it is very real. And it's something that is really important to to have top of mind when you're engaged in work that is inherently very heavy. I think in terms of how it's changed my life, frankly, in a in a positive way is, I I can't imagine doing anything else. I think that it's it's like everything is is a double edged sword. Is that the work is heavy, but mm. the work is also really important. Mm.
0: Has your Time, the time that you spend now working with people and with societal challenges that are really heavy, really serious, I imagine very sad at times. Has that impacted your personal ability to go and play and find fun or changed your relationship with it in any way? Because I think I speak to a lot of people who recognize that they don't have any play in their life that they have become very serious and some of them that's because they have really serious jobs they're mm-hmm. or they're caring for people or they've got like really like hardcore things going on in their career or personal life and i'm just curious how how you have found the time and space to to maintain the your relationship with play perhaps you can tell us how you play.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I'm getting back, back into it. Right. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, you, a, a, a chocolatier is going to make candies because they love chocolate. And then they wake up like two years later and are like, I haven't had a chocolate just because yeah. I've been making them for everyone else. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I felt like that, yeah. you know, where, where I find myself sitting behind a computer screen talking about play all day. Yeah. And then I sort of step back and you're like, oh, it's ten o'clock at night and I haven't done anything. Yeah. Um, you know my my play has always been has always been really sort of kinesthetic, moving my body. Yeah. That's something that's always been really important to me. And I I also think that what I've loved about uh, play is being bad at something and being able to embrace that. You know, there's yeah. a there's a, a surfboard behind me and in, in this little office area and i i picked up surfing because i frankly I, I wanted to be bad at something i wanted to learn something and so for me play is is very movement oriented but also mm. really focuses on learning something
0: yeah but you lost that a bit when you were in the thick of it
1: yeah 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 i think it it ebbs and flows and i think you know another really important thing to recognize and this is something you know someone that I look at as a, as a mentor in this space, Kevin Carroll says quite often is, you know, play is serious business Mm. and it's also this catalyst for creativity. Yeah. And so whenever I'm hitting a block in my work or in my relationship or in, you know, in, in friendships, I have to constantly remind myself in this very intentional practice of, you know, Hey, maybe you should go play Adam. Like maybe it's time to get outside a little bit walk the talk. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's not always a perfect system.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And yeah, when you're faced with those sort of that life's seriousness right in front of you as an adult, it can also feel inappropriate to, to, to do it. It feels like it's not the time, like that's for vacation or that's for when I'm saying I'm going to take a break. And when you're in that headspace, that's actually when you need to do it.
1: what's that? It's that really interesting uh, metaphor of, you know, if, if a tornado is coming by your house and one parent wants to freak out and watch the news and the other one wants to play a game, it's like, you know, both of those are, are very honest and appropriate reactions. Yeah. Um, But even in moments that are feel the most serious, I think we can't lose sight of, of what play can provide us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you're, story and the work that you've been doing is a real demonstration of that So what would you like to to do next or how would you like to see what you started in Portland evolve what kind of potential do you see for for the the activation that you've already achieved
1: so uh, a lot of my work is really headed into systems and introducing play in creating more equitable societies and really thinking about, the way that we can reframe the way that everything from judiciaries and in legislatures are, are, are structured through injecting more, more play into them. And I think that like really what this means is leaning into, and we've talked a bit about this is like what the radical rubric of, of, you know, what, what the radical rubric of play provides. And that is, you know, an opportunity to learn about justice and equality and humanity and the more you do it, the better you get at it everywhere else. And so in, in my mind, I'd really like to transition this work into being more recognized as a vital part of addressing these issues. And so to take something, you know, we've, we've talked a fair bit about homelessness in this conversation is, you know, when we think about homelessness, the sort of hot topics that always come up are um, affordable housing, gentrification, mental health services, you know, so on and so forth. And all of those are absolutely vital in intrinsic parts of addressing this massive societal challenge. And so is play, right? And so bringing that into the mainstream as Mm -hmm. this really important piece of social progress. And I think the other part that we often fail to recognize is we've, we've built play to be an afterthought. We've built play to be something you know that we constantly say, oh, I can't play because I don't have the time, I don't have the money, I don't have the energy, I have all this other stuff to do and there's all this other stuff is more important and I think that we kind of have to redefine that in our minds and that is a huge societal shift and one that you can sort of break down by creating these really intentional programs, hopefully all over the United States and then moving it you know globally. why not dream big?
0: yeah, and I think it's it's what you sort of talk about there of that shifting in people's minds of the role of play is, is relevant for everyone and is, is transformational in itself. Because as we've talked about in this conversation, the increase in empathy, the, um, ability to see people, to connect with our humanity and see each other's humanity all happens effortlessly in play and when we play with one another and the more that we can understand and make that shift in our own minds and it doesn't matter who you are whether you're working you know in projects and and sort of amongst deeply within the societal challenges like you are Adam or if you're just you know parent at home um right. just you know living your life or doing whatever you're doing like it's relevant for everyone because As you're as you're sort of describing there, a shift in our connection to play, in our understanding of its role, could completely change how our societies function and how we interact with one another.
1: Oh, absolutely! And I think, you know, oftentimes when we have these conversations, you know, you 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 like to think about like, what is the problem that play could potentially be fixing? Yeah, and. Play isn't a you, you know, ubiquitous solution to everything from climate change to homelessness, gun violence. Um, although it is a vital part. And I think that like if you don't believe me, open up Twitter, so to speak. You know, like look at the discourse. Yeah it, that that surrounds these really challenging issues in the way that we treat each other. Yeah. 100%. And so I mean, we can't find consensus on anything in the United States. And I think, you know, that, that political polarization, you know, again, play isn't going to necessarily fix that, but it is going to at least allow us this baseline of empathy and humanity and Mm -hmm. understanding of people that look and feel different to Mm -hmm. us. And I think like that is such a vital starting place, like a, you know, a, a playful society is a more democratic society
0: yeah and some parts of the world have that nailed some parts of scandinavia um and that part of the world they massively understand play and it and it pays dividends in the way that their societies function stop arguing start playing that was what jumped to mind as you were speaking (laughs) (laughs) that's the mission stop arguing online stop playing um adam it's been an absolute pleasure to to speak with you wish you all the best with your next projects and thank you for sharing your knowledge and experiences it's really inspiring and it's just really eye-opening to hear what you have been doing so really appreciate you coming to to chat to me and we'll drop all of the places that people can find you and your work in the the show notes
1: thanks so much for having me and i appreciate it